Welcome to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by Compassionate Living. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our past shows and more information by going to our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org, and you can find my contact information there as well. So today we have joining us Christopher Soul Eubanks. He is a dedicated activist doing amazing work that combats all forms of injustice, working for the liberation of humans and non-humans alike. And we're going to get to our important conversation soon, but I was alerted to something recently that I felt was important, an important bit of news to share, and it has to do with greenwashing, the environmental aspect of the humane hoax. So if you are vegan or if you like ice cream or both, you've probably seen or know about coconut bliss ice cream. It's a vegan coconut milk ice cream that's very popular here on the West Coast in California for sure. Uh, It's based out of Eugene, Oregon, and uh, it's nationwide though. You can get it across the country and it's been on the market for 16 years. Well, they just made an announcement. They are changing their name to Cosmic Bliss, from Coconut Bliss to Cosmic Bliss, and they're adding a new line of ice cream. And guess what it's made from? Drumroll. Grass-fed dairy. Yeah. Oh, I really can't believe it. It's it's just so frustrating and uh, infuriating. In the announcement email, they talked about supporting, quote, regenerative farming efforts with 100% grass-fed dairy. Uh, there's words all over the email and the website uh, announcement like earth-friendly and sustainable, Ah, uh, wow. It's it's kind of shocking, really, that a vegan company, a long-time vegan company, um, vegan over a decade, would make this move. It's possible that they fell into the local hoax because coconut was their main ingredient. So importing coconut from the tropics, you know, it's it's a long way to travel, so it feels impactful. But breeding and raising cows is always worse. No matter how they're raised, no matter how they're marketed, every time that there is a life cycle assessment, these LCAs where scientists and environmentalists assess a food's environmental impact, when you look at local versus animal products, animal products are always more energy intensive no matter how far they came from, no matter how, how far the plant food came from or the animal product came from, the local aspect of it, animal products are always more intensive, always more greenhouse gas emissions, um, no matter how far the plants, plant foods traveled. And no matter if the cows were in buildings or out on fields, Animal products are always more harmful, more resource-intensive, more greenhouse gas emissions. (sighs) So on their website, they say, uh, We set forth on a journey to show there is a better way to make dairy ice cream. Better for the planet, better for people, better for our animal friends, and better for our taste buds. So (laughs) it's even going to taste better than the coconut. (laughs) Oh my god. Wow. So 
this this is the humane hoax in action, folks. Uh, there's a better way to do the most horrible thing that we do in agriculture, right? No need to change your habits. We're going to make it all better. Oh, I feel so betrayed by a beloved vegan brand. There's another aspect to this that really bothers me, and that is the direction that this company is moving in and the message that that sends. So, you know, they're saying that it's for people who eat dairy, to have a better option. But this could encourage people who were eating their coconut ice cream to try their dairy ice cream. So that's moving them in the wrong direction. Even possibly vegans or plant-based folks, uh, especially ones that were doing it for environmental reasons, could think that the grass-fed dairy is better. That's exactly what they're telling them right? This is moving in a really dangerous direction. It's saying that an animal product is better, that an animal product is more sustainable than a plant product. And that is never the case. Never, especially for the animals. It's certainly not better for the animals. So I did send a comment to Cosmic Bliss, formerly Coconut Bliss, on their website, uh, on the comment page on their website, and I'll read it here to you. I wrote... I'm heartbroken. As a longtime vegan who has loved your brand for many years, I feel betrayed. But the real betrayal is to the animals. On these grass-fed farms, are cows not artificially inseminated? Are their calves not taken from them? Do they not go to a brutal slaughter after their milk output has waned? You know the answer. Even on organic, small-scale, grass-fed farms, Cows are violated with artificial insemination, their babies are taken away, and they are, quote, retired to the slaughterhouse. They are also subjected to brutal treatment, punching, kicking, prodding, and other miseries. This has all been well documented. Not on our farm, you might say. And how many farms will you need to create all your product? Do you really think that you can have the oversight required to truly know what is happening 24-7 on all those farms? There's no way. I will be boycotting your brand and encouraging others to do so as well. This is a move in the wrong direction. This is not the direction of compassion, not the direction of sustainability, and not the direction of the future. And I do encourage you, dear listeners, to not buy Cosmic Bliss now. There's lots of other vegan brands of ice cream that are staying true to their ethical mission. Let's support them so they stay that way. And, you know, I'm so outraged that I have created a petition and a campaign through Compassionate Living calling for a boycott of Cosmic Bliss. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. You can go uh, to this podcast's social media pages and find links there as well. I have pinned the post uh, to the top of our Facebook page on both this podcast's Facebook page and Compassionate Living. So please go and sign the petition, share the post, spread the word that Cosmic Bliss is moving in the wrong direction and should really be called out for this, this greenwashing and humane washing. Okay, so let's now move into our interview and hear from our wonderful guest, Sol Eubanks. And just a word of caution, we do unpack some terms and words in this interview that might be triggering for some, so please go in with that awareness. 
Okay, I would like to welcome Christopher Sol Eubanks. He is a climate and human and animal rights activist who was raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and has dedicated himself to doing advocacy work that combats all forms of injustice. After learning about the horrors of animal exploitation, Sol became vegan and helped co-organize Atlanta's first ever animal rights march. He has a YouTube channel and is a contributing author to two anthologies, and he's actually also contributing a chapter to my upcoming uh, Humane Hoax anthology that will be coming out early next year. So welcome to the podcast, Sol. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for including me in the anthology. It's it's an honor to be here and an honor to be included. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad that you were available and able to uh, write a wonderful chapter. I'm excited to share it with everybody. Not for a while, though. That's how <laughs> these book things go. It takes so long. Uh, but uh, but eventually. Uh, but here we are today to be able to, to talk. And I'm so glad that you were able to come on the podcast. Likewise. Yeah. So, so I like to start with our guest's vegan journey and kind of how and when you went vegan. So what got you started down the vegan path? Well, that's a uh, great question. I typically say that my vegan journey started when I was 13, although it wasn't, I wasn't aware of veganism at the time that played a part of my journey. So at 13, I read one of my favorite books, The Autobiography of Malcolm X. In that, I learned about Malcolm X and his uh, dietary habits, and I read a book that was referenced in the book, uh, in the autobiography called How to Eat to Live by his mentor at the time, Elijah Muhammad. So I read that book, and it just spoke about the negative impact of eating animal products. It spoke about how consuming animals has a negative impact on your body. So at the time, I just wanted to be a healthier person. So I began to slowly eliminate eating animal flesh from my diet. And I didn't know how to do it correctly per se. So I did it in two year increments. So at 13, I stopped eating pigs. 15, I stopped eating cows. And at 17, I stopped eating uh, turkeys Mm. and uh, chickens. So I was a vegetarian at the time. But at this time, it wasn't about the ethics for me. It was just about a healthy diet. And I stayed vegetarian for about a decade. And then I just felt weird. And I was the only vegetarian that I knew. And I just kind of felt like an outcast in in my vegetarianism. So I started back consuming animal products. And slowly after that, I would say I really started to, well, once I began to do a lot of self-discovery and I left my job in corporate America to really discover who I wanted to be. This was around my early 30s. And during this time, I started to learn more about meditation and just mindfulness and spirituality. And veganism was something that was introduced to me through that also. Eventually, I got to the point where I wanted to watch this film called Cowspiracy. And once I watched Cowspiracy, I completely went plant-based that same day. Mm -hmm. And initially, it was just because I wanted to be a better environmentalist. So although I was a little bit aware of the ethics of animals, uh, animal rights, it just it still hadn't hit me yet. Mm. But after watching Conspiracy, I went plant based and I slowly began to learn more and more about the ethics of veganism. Ultimately, what made me decide to become vegan was realizing that I was contributing to mass suffering on a scale that I had not even thought about 
in my lifetime. And it's something that I felt if I could do this, if I could contribute to this amount of violence and abuse and systemic oppression, while I was also being adamant and vocal about people standing up against racism and discrimination against people of color, I just kind of felt like this internal conflict was brewing within me. And I had to tell the world that, okay, you know what, as a person of color, I see these injustices that are happening to me and people that I know throughout my life. But now I have realized that, wow, even during that, I'm still supporting this large scale suffering of non-human animals that I never even thought about in my life. So once I made that connection, I went vegan on the spot and started to do activism and organize in my local community. But that's ultimately my vegan journey. It went from vegetarianism to uh, consuming animal products to plant-based to now being vegan. Wow. Wow. It's, it's really interesting that you, that your first uh, introduction to plant-based eating was through Malcolm X. And there's a long history of Muslim, black Muslim plant-based eating. And I remember back in the eighties, nineties in Oakland, the packaged vegan products, a lot of the packaged vegan products you could find were from the black Muslim bakery. Mm. And they had, you know, wonderful plant-based cookies and things like that, that were packaged. Uh, So there's definitely a history there. I'm I'm sure that's true. And what I will say to that, to a larger extent, is there's a lot of plant-based eating that's been um, a part of just black and brown people's indigenous culture just throughout history. I think a lot of people don't understand that before uh, black and brown people were colonized, a lot of their diets were heavily plant-based. And that's something that's been stripped of a lot of people's heritage and knowledge. So a lot of people may not be as familiar with that, but there's a large legacy of black and brown and indigenous people consuming uh, predominantly plant-based diets. Yeah, no, that's really, um, really interesting. And I, I love the connections that are being made in this moment right now. In our movement, in the vegan movement, we are making these connections, seeing non-human animals and marginalized human communities as victims of the same systems of oppression. And your work is about connecting these justice issues. So tell us about this work. Why, why does the vegan movement need more inclusion and a broader perspective? Oh, it absolutely needs more inclusion and a broader perspective because that's the only way we can actually achieve the collective liberation when there's no way that non-human animals or human animals are going to ever be free if we have the movement or any movement led by one people of the minority. And many people don't realize that black and brown people are the global majority. When you look at the population of the world, there are more people of color in the world than there aren't. So in order for people to be able to reach the mass population, the message is going to have to come from people that look like them, sound like them, can talk like them, can communicate with them, understand their experience. If not, then we'll always have this ceiling of how far and how the the things that we can achieve and the heights that we can reach. And There's a lot of amazing 
work that's being done in the animal protection movement. But in order for us to, you know, ultimately change how society views non-human animals, it's going to have to include a lot more people of the global majority. So that's why we have to have that inclusion because we need a lot of people doing a lot of different things and a, a lot of people from a lot of different cultures advocating for animals and communicating in a language that speaks to a wide variety of people. And we need ideas from different groups of people in our society. We need people that are Muslim. We need people that are Asian. We need people that are Black. I mean, we need such a wide variety of people to be able to address the ethics of animal rights in their communities and to people that look like them and sound like them in order for us to really make the change that we want because we want a collective liberation. We want a society where not only are humans not exploited, but non-human animals are not exploited. And you know, also to add to that, we're going to need people that are also victims of these systems of oppression and that have experience fighting these systems of oppression. People of color have such great wealth of knowledge and information and insight to lend to the animal rights community and to lend to animal advocacy efforts that if those insights and that knowledge isn't uh, isn't seen and shared within the fight for animal rights, once again, there's only going to be so much that we can achieve. So it's crucial that we include people from all walks of life and from all backgrounds in our animal advocacy efforts. Yeah, I agree. It is critical. And I think that uh, it's something that that we, I, I think that as animal activists from the last 40 years, I, I think we thought we were speaking to everyone, <laughs> but we're learning now that there are huge swaths of communities in the U.S., around the world that we were excluding, uh, that we weren't reaching. We've got to, we've got to reach out. We've got to expand the movement to be able to do that. So it's, it's so important, the work you're doing. I appreciate it very much. And you use the term people of the global majority, and we've introduced this term actually on, on this podcast before, but just to hear it again. And from another perspective, why is this a, a, possibly better term to use than people of color, or are they kind of interchangeable? Tell us about this term, people of the global majority. Yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad that you asked that. One of the reasons, uh, well, I will say that it's no necessarily harm in interchanging them. You know, Mm -hmm. at times I say people of color, sometimes I say people of the global majority. But one of the reasons that I think is important and why people are starting to use people of the global majority or by PGM, Black, Indigenous, people of the uh, global majority, is because oftentimes people of color are spoken about like they are the minority when in fact they are the majority. So it's often when someone speaks about people of color, they're always spoken about like they are the minority, but in actuality, they are the majority of the world's population. So I think it gives more context to who makes up the world's population. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And, and so through this work now, you have started an organization called Apex Advocacy. Congratulations on starting a nonprofit, by the Thank way. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. So tell us about this project. Tell us about Apex Advocacy. 
Yeah, thank you. Thank you again. So Apex Advocacy is essentially I started this organization because I had a lot of ideas about not only actions and initiatives that I wanted to create, but I also didn't want to only use my social media platform for a, a lot of the ideas that I wanted to create. So I figured in order for me to really give the full support and push behind all of these ideas, it needed to be done under a under an umbrella that was much bigger than me. So this is why I created Apex Advocacy. So I have a lot of things that I wanted to that I want to do with this nonprofit, but ultimately I want to create a space that's much bigger than me to allow these ideas and initiatives to live. So Apex Advocacy, Apex is an acronym for Animal Protection, Equality, Intersectionality. Mm. So this is a platform that you will see a lot of social media content. You will see a lot of uh, activism that we're about to announce very soon and some campaigns that we're creating and working on. So it's, you know, it's essentially a hub for a lot of the ideas that are revolving around the concepts of race and animal rights and understanding how animal rights can help achieve collective liberation for all. So that's the, in a nutshell, kind of what Apex is uh, centering around. That's exciting. I uh, can't wait to see what, uh, what you have to come, what you have in store. And recently in an article, you said, uh, we, this is a quote, of you. <laughs> we <laughs> want to use our platform as a tool to help people in marginalized communities that have fights with animal agriculture to stand up to it. And I wanted to know if you were talking about environmental racism. Is that what you were talking about? Can you tell us about, about this? Sure. So that's a great question. Thanks for asking that. And so it's not only limited to environmental racism, but it's going to be focusing on instances where animal agriculture is essentially bullying black and brown communities. Mm. So for example, there's a slaughterhouse that's not too far from me. It's a backyard slaughterhouse and they are operating in a residential neighborhood. The neighbors in the community are fed up with this slaughterhouse. They want the slaughterhouse gone. This slaughterhouse owner is killing animals, just shooting them. And just ultimately animal agriculture is allowing this to take place with very little pushback. The community is organizing and trying to get the slaughterhouse shut down, but it's not a very big news story. It's not, I guess, as sexy as some of the other injustices mm. that happen in the uh, animal rights movement. So a lot of attention isn't drawn on situations like this. So what I want to do with Apex is to find specific instances like this and help the community organize, create pressure campaigns, find activists, support them with our, our full team, help them research what's going on. You know, even if I have to find ways to help get them legal resources, fight in court, whatever I can do with my team, with my organization, I want to help these communities that are typically black and brown uh, stand up against animal agriculture and how animal agriculture is bullying their community. So that's the effort. Sometimes it will include environmental racism. Like in this instance, uh, particularly, there's an environmental racism element involved because this slaughterhouse owner has essentially a compost area where he composts the animal's bodies. 
this isn't something that's supposed to be done on a large scale. Well, the state of Georgia says that, you know, backyard slaughterhouses can operate to a certain extent. Like someone can kill an animal, you know, every blue moon or so. That's how the law is supposed to be carried out. It's not supposed to be something that is done daily with, you know, hundreds of animals being killed every month because that does impact the soil, the uh, water in this community, killing all of these animals, the feces, all of this being done in a residential area is very toxic for the environment in, in this community. So yeah, there's a lot of overlapping issues that, uh, that take place in instances like these. So it's not only limited to environmental racism, but ultimately anywhere where animal agriculture is pretty much going unchecked in black and brown communities, I want to start to help these communities mobilize and fight and apply direct pressure to people that can make change in these situations. Yeah, that's great. That's such good work. And I think a lot of people don't realize that most animal agriculture and slaughterhouses and, uh, you know, the, the large industrial farming happens in areas of uh, marginalized communities and, and low-income areas uh, and places where people don't have the resources or power to stand up and say, get it out of my backyard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's really, really uh, amazing work. I'm, I'm uh, excited to see uh, where you go with that. So I, I, I wanted to ask you actually about the South and kind of on a different, in a different area around vegan food, because it's the South's often seen as kind of unfriendly to vegans, right. And kind of a vegan desert that you can't get any good vegan food in the South, but that's really changing with people like Pinky Cole and other really just amazing vegan chefs uh, doing Southern style food. So what's changing in the South around the food? What are you, what are you seeing with that aspect of it? Yeah, that's a great thing to mention because there are so many plant-based and vegan restaurants starting to pop up. Yeah. And specifically in Atlanta, it's it it's just unreal. Just even in the South, I think, you know, to the point I was speaking about earlier, there's a lot of plant-based food that is in black and brown and indigenous people's culture. And I think we're as a society starting to showcase that more and make space for that more. And it's really being displayed when you see all of these new restaurants is popping up. Like I have a, a friend who I was doing activism with a few years ago and she was always cooking and she was sharing her recipes with her family and friends. She's a Latin and she used to always speak about how there were no vegan tamales. She never was raised to eat tamales unless they had animal products in them. Mm. So she started making these tamales and they just caught like fire. Mm. Everybody started ordering from her and she started experimenting with other uh, vegan food that's Latin. And now she has a, a pop-up called Calaveritas in Atlanta. And it is just like the talk of the town and it's always sold out. Like you mentioned, Peking Cole, she just started doing plant-based burgers, uh, I think just a few years ago. 
the sole vegetarian restaurant. And, has and been that's just, it's taken off like crazy, right? She's so popular now. It's amazing. Yeah. The slutty vegan chain. I think she's opening other restaurants, right? Yeah. She just opened a bar. I don't oh, want to wow. say chess, but within the past year, uh-huh. it's called um, Bar Vegan. I, I went there. It was incredible. So it's just a, you would never even think it was a vegan bar until you see the sign. It's just a regular bar. Uh-huh. And it's, it, it looks really amazing. And yeah, she has incredible food there. It's yeah. all vegan. Huh. So it's just so many options. There's another plant-based restaurant, plant-based pizzeria that's awesome. They're just popping up left and right and specifically yeah. in Atlanta, but throughout the South. I'm starting to see a lot more plant-based options. I have this website that we created called Black Vegan Everything. Mm. And it showcases a wide variety of Black-owned and Black-led vegan businesses and organizations. And we break down all of the businesses and organizations within these states. And there's a lot of states in there from the South that have tons of vegan options. So it's just incredible the amount of plant-based and vegan options that people are starting to adapt. Yeah. The growth is incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'll put a link to that uh, in the show notes. Sounds great. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of bringing it back to activism, there's a common concern that you sometimes hear from animal activists when we start talking about broadening into these areas and that argument goes, if we tackle too much, take on too much, too many issues, then we spread ourselves too thin. What would you say to this concern? Yeah, I think that is that comes from a real place of concern. But I would also say that I don't think we have to take attention away from the animals in order to address these things that are happening. My organization is completely abolitionist. And when I what that means is that there are people doing advocacy for animals that approach it from a welfare stance. So they may want better, you know, quality of life for animals before they are killed, or they may want bigger cages or no cages for animals in animal agriculture. Me personally, I don't use those types of uh, ideas and initiatives with my organization. Specifically, all of my advocacy that's done is done in an abolitionist stance where I don't necessarily promote things like vegetarianism or reducitarianism, although I see the benefits of those to our society at large at times, instead of not having those options available. But that just shows that although there may be things that you may not see eye to eye with in terms of approach, it doesn't mean that it has to be a conflict around how you respond to that message. So I do understand people's concerns about, you know, not spreading themselves, not spreading the movement too thin. But just because we address these issues of race and the role of different forms of oppressions within the animal rights community or the animal rights movement, that takes away from the progress that we're going to make. I would argue actually that that is actually helping the movement. Because if we just think that we're going to be able to not address these things within the animal rights community, and so many of these issues are prevalent to so many people that are either activists already or that are potential activists, and we think we're going to be able to avoid these issues, then that's not going to help the movement at all. You know, we have to talk about these issues and communicate about these issues, because if we let them go unchecked, we're going to 
once again, limit the growth of the movement. So I think it's important for us to address these issues while not taking away from the message that this is a space for uh, non-human animals to be censored. I think we can do both things. I think we can totally address the role of whether it be colonialism, white supremacy, and animal rights, while also centering the animals. That doesn't mean that we have to take any spotlight away from them. It just means that we are not going to be silent and ignore the other issues that are persisting in the animal rights movement and that persist in oppressing non-human animals. So I think we can do both. I don't think it's a one or the other. Yeah, I agree. And educating ourselves on this stuff is really, really important. And another something, and it actually just came up recently uh, in an event I was I was at. I wonder if you could speak to using the language of um, human oppressions as applied to animal oppressions, like words like mm-hmm. slavery and Holocaust and rape. You know, these words are are um, can be very painful for certain communities and making those comparisons can be painful. So yeah, I wonder if you you would speak to this because I think it's something that that uh, we still struggle with in the animal rights community. Why is it not okay to say, you know, that animals are being treated as slaves? Because, well, I, I would love you to speak to that. Yeah, absolutely. It is great that we're talking about this because a lot of these terms, they are technically sound, like what is happening uh, to non-human animals is slavery. It is a different type of slavery, but it is definitely, you know, them being forced against their will to do things that they don't want to do and not have control over their existence. So it is absolutely uh, slavery. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to compare it to other forms of slavery or even mention that it is slavery. Using the word slavery could be triggering, could be problematic. These things that are happening to our non-human animal family are so vile and so despicable that we don't need to try to use these words to sensationalize it or use inflammatory language. I think one of the things that we have to understand is that we are actually talking to human beings when we are trying to advocate for the rights of animals. And we have to understand that we could be more effective or understanding the situation a lot better could mean that maybe we need to talk to people in a way where it's more effective than us being right because it is totally right to say these terms by the definition of them. I'll I'll never say that it's not technically right to say terms like slavery and rape, but how effective is that? Are you trying to trigger people? Are you trying to shock people into understanding what this is about? Or you trying to win an argument? Or are you trying to actually get through and have an effective conversation with someone? So It just all comes down to how effective do you think you can be using these terms and terminology? And if this is really positive for the interaction that you're having, I personally don't use it just because I, because I think sometimes it's a gamble when using this type of terminology. And it's just a gamble that I'm not really willing to take or risk. I really want to make sure that I'm doing everything to keep the attention on the animals as opposed to shifting energy towards the language that I'm using. And that could turn the conversation and not be about the animal. So 
And I, one of the things that I think is also coming into play and why this is starting to be addressed more is because as the movement is growing, you're starting to have people in the movement that have suffered from these instances that have been oppressed in these ways. I think it's just very, it's, it's something that we have to be aware of that when we use these uh, words and this type of communication, we may not be as effective as we think we are or could be. Yeah, really, really well said. Um, thank you for for breaking that down and and unpacking that. And for me, I use those terms for years and years because I've been in this movement now for thirty years. You know, and now there's this awareness around it, and I am I'm not using those words because to me. If, if there's just one person that that word could hurt or could cause trauma or, you know, have some kind of negative reaction, I, I don't want to hurt that person, even beyond mm-hmm. being effective, you know, which is so important. Like you said, it's not effective if we are getting people to be defensive or not hear us because they're caught on these um, terms. So uh, I want them to think about the animals not about those words, you know, and there's so many other ways that we can say it. There's so many other terms that we can use that are, that, like you said, are just as impactful that, that really expose the horrors just as much. These terms don't need to be used. Absolutely. And I think it can also be situational. Like there may be times when as a, as a black man, I could say, I would be more comfortable saying, talking about slavery and animal rights and making that parallel to uh, another black person. Mm. But maybe I wouldn't use the word rape as something that I would describe if I'm having a conversation about animal rights with a woman. Mm. So, or someone that has shared that they, that that's something that has happened to them. So it's also about understanding the situation. If you feel that you're in a situation with someone and you have a rapport with them and you can use that language and it helps to resonate the conversation, then it's still a gamble. It's still something that you will have to decide if you feel that you would feel comfortable with. But kind of to your point, if it's something that could be problematic or troubling, I just tend to stay away away from that now at this point in my advocacy. Yeah, so important. Well, I hope that we... um as a movement can really shift our language and, uh, and, and as you said, be more effective. And on a broader level, I wonder if you could share what you feel are the best forms of activism. Uh, you've been doing this for a while. You've now started your own nonprofit. What do you think is the best thing to do as far as uh, taking action for, for animals and for injustice? That's a great question. And I think that's one that sometimes gets, I will say, too much attention because I think ultimately what it comes down to is the activism that's most comfortable and sustainable for the activists themselves. I think a lot of times we focus so much on analysis and how effective one type of activism is versus another type of activism. So for instance, when I first started doing activism, I love doing vegan outreach. That's the type of activism that really resonates with me the most. And this is when people go out into the streets and have conversations with people about adopting a vegan lifestyle. And this is the type of activism that resonated with me. 
And I also started doing visuals. This is where you go to a slaughterhouse and you do what's called bearing witness, where you document the animals being transported into the slaughterhouse and try to take pictures and just be there with them and provide any level of comfort for them as you uh, or as you can. Yeah. Now, for every person that differs, there are some people that would just completely fall apart at doing vigils. Mm-hmm. I know incredible activists that just cannot cope with doing vigils. It is just not in their spirit. They will never go to a vigil because it is literally too much for them to witness. It is just too much for them to be around. Mm. So for that person, I wouldn't dare tell them the most effective form of activism is to go to a vigil and vice versa. There are people that are just would literally maybe break out in hives at the thought of having to have conversations with people (laughs) on the street doing outreach. Right. So I couldn't tell that person that would be the most effective form of activism. Ultimately, what I think it comes down to is what is the type of activism that you can see yourself doing long term, whether that be outreach, whether that be chalking, whether that be doing advocacy in the political arena. You know, that's a form of advocacy. So whatever you feel is sustainable for you, that's what we really need. We need people that's going to be able to advocate for the rest of their lives, not just people that's going to be able to advocate for a couple of months and burn out. Whatever can help you avoid burning out, whatever activism is sustainable for you that you can see yourself doing that doesn't weigh too heavy on your spirit. That's the best type of activism. Yeah. Yeah. I so agree. And if, you know, if anyone has any leanings towards anything, art, accounting, whatever it is, that's your thing, the movement needs your help. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Sol, it has been wonderful to have you on. And my last question for you is what gives you hope for the future? Oh, that is a great question. It's a question that I think needs to be spoken about more. Yeah. Because a lot of times in this work, people get their spirits broken because it's such heavy work. I think there's a the term dystopia from Claire Mann, and that describes pretty much being the anguish of being vegan in a non-vegan world. And the same rings true in activism. And a lot of times when people start doing activism, it's just a lot to grasp with. It's a lot to see animal suffering. It's a lot to talk about it. It's a lot to make this your life's work. But one of the things that really gives me hope is the future generation. There are so many incredible activists that are going to advocate for animals that are already advocating for animals now. Children, literally, we spoke briefly about vegan Evan, and he's such a seasoned activist. Like He is just incredible. And I'm inspired by him every time I'm around him. He does speak outs at events he speaks to the public. He's probably participated in all types of action. So people like him, people like Genesis Butler, she's incredible. She's what only 14 or 15 and she's an incredible activist at mm. 14. And she's done so much already in her young life. So I think this next generation of activists really give me hope because one, I'm seeing a lot of them form and develop literally year after year and become stronger and better activists. And It really gives me hope because I don't think consuming animals and exploiting animals and abusing animals will be something that's widely accepted by our our society in the future. I think world habits are going to change and these are not going to be things that are commonplace and normalized in our society. So I think with the future generation, 
I have a lot of hope that they'll get to the point where animal consumption will be similar to things like smoking cigarettes. Like people still do it, but it's not, but it's frowned upon. I think we're going to get to a point in our society where consuming animal products will be shunned. And it's going to ultimately get to the point where we look back on consuming animals the same way we look back on other atrocities that were come in place in our society. So the future generation gives me a lot of hope. Yeah, that's it's it's true. You know, the 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 kids give us a lot of hope. Uh, they're wonderful, and uh, and there are so many younger and younger activists out there. So that is incredibly hopeful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Sol, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for also writing a chapter for the upcoming Humane Hoax Anthology. That's going to be out next year. That's really exciting. So we will awesome. be working together more and more. And uh, I really wish you the best with Apex Advocacy and all that you do. Thank you for being on. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here and I can't wait until the book comes out and we can uh, talk about it even more on here again. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to have you on again and we'll, we'll talk about it. Absolutely. All right. Thanks soul. No problem. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the hope for the animals podcast sponsored by compassionate living. I'm so glad that soul was able to join us for this episode you know, we're moving through some difficult growth as a movement. And I understand, I understand that it can be really overwhelming to do this work, to do animal rights and animal protection work, just being vegan. It can be, it can be hard, it can be overwhelming. And there's a comfort and an ease in kind of doing it as we've always done it, doing it you know, like we have for so many years, and just focusing solely on the animals and not thinking about these things that are now being considered problematic. But these are complicated issues, and we're seeing and realizing a bigger picture here, right? That these oppressions are systematic, that they're intertwined, and we have to get to the root causes of all oppressions to truly have both non-human and human liberation. When we say that we want a vegan world, you know, I hear it all the time, vegans saying, we, we want to create a vegan world. Well, I know that the vast majority of us that say that wouldn't want a world where all animals are free of suffering, but humans are still oppressed without equality, without equity, without full rights as we want for the animals, right? No, of course not. We don't want anyone to suffer. We want total collective liberation. So that's why we're talking about these challenging issues and needed growth within the movement. I believe it will make us stronger as a movement. It will make us better advocates. So please educate yourself and do what you can to help. And one way that you can help is to support Soul's new group, Apex Advocacy. I'll definitely put a link to that group in the show notes. There's lots of other great organizations that are doing this work as well. Groups like Encompass and Afro Vegan Society. Check them out. Educate yourself. If you found this episode important, please share it. 
If you go to our Facebook page or our Instagram page, you can share this episode. And what also helps so much is if you're listening on a podcast app, scroll down and leave those five-star ratings and reviews. I want to share this information with everyone. So please help me to reach more listeners. And those ratings and reviews boost our effectiveness, boost our standing in the algorithms. So help us get this information out there far and wide. Thank you so much for seeing this episode through to the end. I appreciate your attention and your compassion. And please live vegan. (laughs) 